Now we don't have any value. Hey Langdon. What's up? I have some good news for you. I love good news. I've been all, bereft of good news for weeks. We all need good news, right? That's right. The good news is there are currently zero world events that we have to talk about. That's so good. I was worried that we'd have to talk about even one world event, so I'm glad none are going on right now. There is so I'm actually going to take credit for this. I spoke to everyone involved, which is every single person on the planet. Um, I did it through dreams. And I said, we should stop uh, doing things. And uh, they all agreed. So nothing is happening. That's fantastic. We need to discuss. um, And that's it. Yeah, I had a satellite all um, set up uh, with massive armaments ready to just take out the Earth if mm. things were happening. Yes. So I'm glad no I need. can scuttle that. Yeah. No need. You can call that satellite off. So instead, instead, because there are no events that we need to discuss, we can talk about a weird internet phenomenon. Uh, isn't that better? Uh, depending on the phenomenon. No, no, no. It's weird and, and quirky and, and odd, right? Instead of ah. the rest of it, <laughs> which is not <laughs> happening anymore, right? Because I told everybody to stop. That's good. So Amazon, you know those guys, they're making a Lord of the Rings show. Yeah, and Ebony Online. I've seen it. Yes, exactly. Um, based on the famous video game, Ultima Online. Love that game. Great that they're making a show off of it. Anyway... So no one has been upset about the casting, right? Because I've asked people to stop doing stuff like that. So uh, that's all good. But in the lead up to the release of the show, I started following some Twitter accounts, right? I was looking for, I don't know, people were sharing like stuff about the Lord of the Rings and I like the Lord of the Rings. And I saw some memes, and I was like, let's follow some accounts. And then you know how it works on Twitter, right? You follow one account, and they start liking other stuff, which shows up in your timeline, so you follow them as well. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in the midst of this um, niche. And the, the interesting thing is, <laughs> I found myself in the midst of several accounts, I won't name anyone here, that do like deviant art. Um, sassified art of Melkor specifically and Sauron, right? Beautiful. Uh, I mean, some of it is really good, right? Like from an artistic standpoint. But it got me thinking. It's it's really, it's an interesting phenomenon of the death of the author, right? Could you think of something that is less <laughs> Tolkien-esque than... <laughs> Ooh, woo, soft, daddy, Sauron, coming back from a long day at work. Fan art? Like... <laughs> I do really love the idea of a yassified Melkor. <laughs> yeah, so like, but, okay, so going back to the authenticity, quote-unquote, dirty word, um, if, if when you read the Silmarillion and also Lord of the Rings, you know, both Melkor and Sauron in their human form, or elfin form, I should say, 
are described as very beautiful, right? It's it's the classic trope of the seductor, right? Um, yeah, they're they're fully yassified. Yes, Tolkien in general <laughs> was um, a girl boss. I don't know if you if you knew this. Um, so and C.S. Lewis was more of a of a of the Chad of the relationship, right? Um, anyway, I did. I have always referred to Tol- uh, Tolkien as a Yasanista. Yes, for sure. I mean, if Tolkien were alive today, he would be an Instagram influencer for sure. Yeah, no um, doubt. Yeah, he would be selling uh, linking to vibrators on his uh, <laughs> on Twitter. Anyway, so like, okay, so they they are beautiful in the books, but if you think about you know elven beauty as it is portrayed, let's say in works of artists who have interpreted Tolkien in the past, um, and Tolkien himself when when he would draw figures, we're talking more of like the classic uh, saga kind of beauty, right? Um, you know, buff men and um, uh, blonde hair and, and and blue eyes and all that completely non-problematic stuff. Um, it's more of an, of an austere and kind of aloof uh, sort of um, beauty. Whereas here, it's more like, um, you know, BTS fan art, right? Like uh, very, um, I mean, these are drawings, right? Rather than pictures, but it's it's that like heavy makeup kind of look, you know, very... Yeah. Um, effete features right very um subtle face lines and you know they have uh, they wear um eye shade and they do their lashes and their hair is like very luscious and it's just it's really it's really interesting um to think about the contrast between that and like some visions that people have of big bad villains right like Sauron and Melkor and the original work from which they come, which I, I I don't know if there's like a lot of discussion to be had here, had here but I, I was just fascinated by that. I wanted to bring it up and 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 get your thoughts on the topic. I uh, I do think that more villains, um, especially in you know complex um, and like landmark works of art, need to be yassified. It um, it's like uplifting animals. Uh, mm. Uh, what, as an aside, I've been thinking about uplifting animals uh, all morning, and that triggers the thought that no one remembers anything else about those books except the fact that they use the term uplift to describe uh, raising the intelligence of animals. And I find that a really funny legacy that, like, it's like six books and no one remembers shit about them except like, oh, man, dolphins can fly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but <clears throat> uh, it does produce. Um, so for non-celestial uh, wisdoms, um, the lay human, witnessing the yassified Melkor um, breaks something inside. And it's an important thing to break. And it's it, you mentioned it uh, as well. That sense of authenticity, which is often more a trap rather than a, a real structure. Uh, especially when it comes to these kinds of cross-cultural matters. Like, it'd be one thing if it was, like, an authentic expression of, like, West African culture uh, versus one that some random white guy in the middle of America is doing. That That's a different kind of thing. But when it comes to, like... um we see this a lot with uh, the hubbub when Star Wars got rid of its extended universe to make a new one. And people were like, no, but all of my very real and very canon extended universe books and everyone who's ever read 
uh, one book outside of the space ever had to lean in and go, that's not how books have worked ever. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you also still own the book and can still read it. And they're like, yeah, but it's not canon anymore. And it's like, yeah, but no one ever referenced it except for other books that you also still own. Yeah, um, and also, and also like, I mean, okay, I'm not going to say that canon is not important, period, but I think it is yeah. so highly overstated and overrated in, in today's circles. I mean, we can go into nerd culture here, right? Which I think is kind of like the specter <laughs> haunting this conversation. Um, and and nerd, nerd culture tends to be awful, right? Um, for multiple different directions. But I think he, here what's so interesting to me is like, you know, Tolkien spent so much work trying to evoke these beings as ultimate entities of evil, right? <laughs> like, there's nothing two ways about fucking Sauron, right? There's no redemption story. There's no potential for, well, you gotta see his side of things, right? Like, yeah, they're, they're deliberate. Like, he yeah, makes ahead. characters like that, but not, not Sauron, not Melkor. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, Melkor is a child, right? Like, the, the entire source of evil in Middle-earth, um, oh, sorry, in Arda, come, stems from his, like, petulance, right? And, and, and not being included. Um, and he does absolutely evil deeds. But it's really interesting to me that no matter how far you try to go as the author to portray something as a certain thing, people um, down the line will read into it whatever they want, right? Like, um it it yeah. plays into this element that we see um i'm going to say his name uh in deleuze uh, <laughs> of, <laughs> of um and in general post structuralists so we were talking about this as well in the uh in the devil house episode of um notions of things like canon or which is a broad um as much as we associate it with nerd culture it comes more um from trying to discuss things like what books it literally comes from what books should be in the bible versus shouldn't but then you can yeah. you apply it uh to cross biblical studies of like there are certain talmudic works that have fallen out of favor and in current collections of the talmud you won't get certain commentaries from certain rabbis you can still acquire them if you go and look for that kind of thing they're not especially when it comes to rabbinical study that stuff isn't nearly as hidden it's just that if you go get like a traditional collected Talmud, um, it won't be in there. Um, likewise, you have similar stuff with um, with the Adas, uh, like the the various mm -hmm. um, Scandinavian and Icelandic Adas, um, which are slightly contradictory in really fun, cool ways. But um, it's it's ultimately still beneficial to remember that even notions of like canonicity or cultural authenticity or things like that are structures, real structures but that other structures can be parallel to them and that structures can interact with each other. And that kind of gets lost in the fray sometimes in the way that people talk about things. Like that's sure. the bit that um, as much as say uh, most of the Marvel movies are shit, uh, they just simply are. Um, and there's a lot of problems with them. Um, they, they provide like an interesting structural thing. And in a perfect world, aka one where 50 years from now they're just gone we just have stopped them um yeah then we can look back and go ah interesting little structure ah um so and i think the the aiders are a really interesting example um if we're talking about you know gaps between 
what is very clearly what the work intended and what it ended up being interpreted as. Right? Because the Adas are full of like lawyers. Right? Like yeah. a, bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of like Icelandic lawyers. If if this makes you um surprised, then you know, the Icelandic law system is one of the oldest existing law systems in Europe. Um, stretching back as far as the 10th century, um, and and they actually had one of the first parliaments, right? The Alting, um, and they so, developed it for really fascinating multicultural reasons. Like we have strong record of them having yeah uh, trade caravans going down to the uh, Arabian Peninsula and back up. Uh, normally stopping in Turkey, but they had contingencies that made it much further south, and likewise contingencies from the same group going north, ones from Western Europe um ones from northern africa so it is this they they had to develop this complex law system in order to smooth out the cultural practices of all these different cultures that they were trading with because they were ultimately a trade culture yeah and uh, but then there's like so for every five stories about lawyers there's (laughs) one story about a warrior right (laughs) but then if you think about Icelandic culture, everybody thinks about, you know, Vikings and <laughs> Thor and, and Loki. And actually Thor and, Lo- and Loki and Odin are also really interesting, right? Because Thor, well, I, I mean, depends which Ada you read, right? But if you read um, the poetic Edda, um, Thor is kind of a buffoon, right? Like he gets made fun of a lot. A lot of the stories is like, you know how in Neil Gaiman's Sandman, Thor has a really tiny hammer? Yeah, um, it's like a <laughs> metaphor for his penis, right? Like he has a really tiny penis, but he's this really buff guy, so he's always insecure. He's kind of like that in the original stories in some versions, right? Like Loki keeps running circles around him, um, and Odin kind of like, oh, get this fucking idiot out of my sight. But then if I you lo- think about, I ahead. love the one, I love the one dinner story where uh, Loki plays a trick on Thor and makes him look so stupid that he gets mad and murders. Um, I forget how many of his own servants with his with Mjolnir. Yeah, but, but he just kills a bunch of his own servants because he's mad. Is that the one where um, Loki transforms Jorgmunder into a cat? Yes, that yes, was it. So, <laughs> yeah, so the story is that Thor is like bragging about how he can lift, you know, anything. Um, and then Loki, of course, makes a bet with him and says that I bet you can't lift this cat. But Loki has cast a spell of illusion and has made Jorgmunder, the worm that circles Midgard, into the cat. Um, and then when Thor tries to pick him up, he obviously can't. And then he gets really, really mad and he starts killing people. So <laughs> linking this back to Yassified Sauron. Um, <laughs> God, that's such a curse, <laughs> curse thing to say. Uh, it's really interesting, like, you read the, the Eddas, and of course more time has passed between us and the Eddas than between us and, and Tolkien, but the effort to, oh my god, something is beeping like mad in my street, some sort of, like, truck or something. Um, the, the truck's effort, just chiming in, it's, it's, it's going, yes. Yeah, exactly, yes, if I truck. Um, so, you try so hard, but... It doesn't matter, right? Like the the function of the author, and again, we're talking about the fucking 13th century when these edas were written down. Even back then, you know, 700 years before Bart or Foucault or any of those guys, um, the function of the author was dead, right? Like it was already gone. Um, and it's really interesting to think about how little time during our culture's history, this idea of the fir- firm, sorry, author f- a function. Wow, that's a tongue twister. Um, <laughs> actually existed, right? Like this really strong tie between intent, work, and message, right? 
you could say that it's like a hundred deals, maybe, like maybe more, like two hundred, right? Eighteenth century, the idea of like intellectual property and 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 stuff like that starts coming up, and and um, you know, presses get way more. Uh, firm with finding out additions and attributing stuff and then it lasts like until the beginning of the 20th century right and then a bunch of philosophers are like wait this doesn't work at all this is like we even we even root it back to the again the roots of canonicity of things like um biblical study and yeah obviously speaking in a room of of um not really deeply spiritual people admittedly but um that that still you you have the structure implicit that like this is either the word directly of god or the word directly inspired or like moses personally wrote this down under the guidance of god yeah um and regardless of like the uh, one we get we get the differing description of how exactly that lineage works two even with that exact lineage um there's immediate breakage in terms of the interpretive praxis. And the the big gap was that people couldn't, people attributed their own interpretive praxis to the abstract notion of an author. Um, but even, even present in those discussions, like we have um, written record of not all, but quite a bit of the discussions of the different councils, of the two different councils of Nicaea. Um, and it's basically the same arguments that, 20th century philosophers would eventually go like, what if, what if the fact that we're arguing means there's a fundamental problem, but yeah. everyone in the room then was like, no, no, shut <laughs> up. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll, I'll fucking, I'll fucking kill you if you keep talking about this. Um, yeah. I think these are all like really interesting questions, especially in light of the book that we are going to discuss. Right. And in general, I think a lot of the works that we have been, um, discussing on on the podcast, and maybe even the very definition of what is a literary work, as in not all literature, right, but the specific kind of literature that we try to discuss here, which is very much embedded inside literary traditions, there is, if not a necessary denial, what the hell is going on in my street? <laughs> um, sorry about all the noise. Jeez. Um, God damn. Um, so, n- not necessarily a denial of canon or of literary traditions, but at least some sort of um, relationship with it, right? I mean, denial is a sort of relationship as well, obviously, but um, you can also have a relationship that is not exactly denying, but reinforcing by undermining, if that makes sense. Like, look at House of Leaves, for example, that we discussed, right? You could say that it's always this very experimental work, and it, it does things outside of the boundaries of, of what literature is expected to do. But by doing that, doesn't it become sort of the exception that not proves, but um, underlines the rule, right? Like after you read House of Leaves or Dalgren or any other, um, Gravity's Rainbow or whatever, doesn't everything else appear more normal by comparison, right? Hasn't it reinforced to you like the boundaries of what you expect usually to um find in books which i think is really interesting to take us back to the tolkien discussion right and specifically this relationship that we now have this tripartite relationship between the new show the movie the movies sorry and the book right i think the movies at this point are as canon if not more canon than the books there's a certain 
aesthetic that the, the Peter Jackson movies have um, enshrined that has become separate and even, one might say, larger than the aesthetic of the books, right? Yeah, it, I, th- I think that's, that's an undeniable kind of statement you yeah. ask a tradi- you ask any lay person to describe the characters in the book and while peter jackson did a tremendous job matching the vast majority of of the descriptions he, he took some liberties which every tolkien oh. fan's pretty happy with no no one I, this is not an attack on the movies they're great but yeah, no, yeah for that, sure. that that yeah but you when those breakages come i guarantee you could not get a lay person to point at even one of them yeah uh, for sure, and and it's not and, even and that, just yeah. Go ahead, and and that's precisely because of of the thing that you mentioned. Like his his aesthetic image of that world has become so supreme that it simply feels it doesn't even feel like it's his, even though it 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 is quite literally his. Yeah, and 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 I think you know more than just the liberties that were taken with some characters or, or story points, the whole vibe and atmosphere of the movies is not really the vibe and atmosphere of the books, right? So I I have this whole solo episode planned on just one page of the Silmarillion that's coming. I still need to like order my thoughts around it. But one of the things that I can say here shortly is, you know, Lord of the Rings, the place that it has in Tolkien's um, legendarium and and the historical flow of his world, it's supposed to describe the decline, right? It's supposed to describe the end of the decline before the new flowering Right before the end of the world, basically before the eschaton and and its redemption, um, and it's a very sad book, sad in, in in the sense of melancholy, right? Like staring out the window, crying for the world that has gone. That's none of that is in in the movies, right? Like there's hardship and toil and fear and and terror even right and war and all that stuff, but there are very few moments where the movies really delay on this feeling of, you know, the world is lost. Maybe the one exception is uh, the Mines of Moria, right? Where you feel like you're walking in this deserted kind of area. But I think the best example, and maybe this can wrap up uh, the discussion, is, is, well, not the final scene, because Peter Jackson had like 50 final scenes, right? But one of the final scenes where Frodo and Sam and all those guys, they're getting honored by Aragorn. So, in the books, that's a really beautiful passage um, that is very, very melancholic. Um, Tolkien describes how a bard comes in and he starts strumming his um, instrument. I'm trying while I'm talking to find to find the actual quote. Um, and as he um, tells of the adventures of Frodo and sings sweetly to them, everyone, oh, I found it. Amazing. Let, let me just read this to you. Um, and behold, he said... Lo, lords and knights and men of valor unashamed, kings and princes and fair people of Gondor, and riders of Rohan, and ye sons of Elrond, and Dunedain of the north, and elf and dwarf and great hearts of the Shire, and all free folk of the west. Now listen to my lay, for I will sing to you of Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. And when Sam heard that, he laughed aloud for sheer delight, and he stood up and cried, O great glory and splendor, and all of my wishes have come true. And then he wept. And all the host laughed and wept. And in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, now in the speech of the West, 
until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords. And they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. What the hell does that have to do with how Peter Jackson did it in the movie, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, in the movie, it's this very, very cathartic moment of like, you know, Aragorn kneels to Frodo, and you, you kneel to no man. Very good scene, right? Like, don't get me wrong. Um, very, very yeah, good scene. It, it very much matches the tone and timbre that he'd achieved throughout the film. But right. yeah, as you were saying, as, as someone who like grew up with the books, he watched that and your first thought is, oh, wow, this is so moving. And then your second thought is, wait, no, but that's that's not how that's not how, what. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's it's interesting to think about, you know, the different um, tones and like. I think tone is a really good word here, like um, yeah. flavor of, of color uh, or of sound that you can get from one work, right? And from its interpretations. And again, just to be clear, like we're all good postmodernists here, right? Like we're not saying that one version is superior to the other. I think that <laughs> Yassified Melkor um, and so on, but less jokingly, this entire vibe that people have been constructing around the work of of these villains as anti-heroes, as people you might sympathize with, as bad boys, right? That's as legitimate and as valid as Peter, Peter Jackson's version of the movie, which is all about uh, rebirth and the light and victory and triumph of the individual, and Tolkien's vision, which is more tempered with, you know, sadness and the world that has gone will never come again, um, and so on. I think those three visions are equally... Um, valuable because they engage with the work, they they think deeply about it, they feel strongly about it, which brings me to what I feel for the Amazon show, right? And what the trailers are having <laughs> feeling. You can interpret this however you'd like, but it needs to have a heart, right? You need to show your love and your engagement with the source material. And like, if I had stripped all the fonts and all the music and the names from the trailer and just showed you this, telling you it's some other generic rendition of some other fantasy series, you would not be able to tell the difference. Now, the show is not out yet, right? So I don't know whether it will be good or not. But what I'm, I'm worried about is that it won't um, engage deeply with the work, which is basically the only standard we have left in the postmodern era for a faithful adaptation right it it's um, especially troubling and this is again admittedly more a mechanical thing but it does not leave me with high hopes that um the showrunners don't have the rights to any of the legendarium only the lord of the rings and the hobbit and it's a prequel show yeah yeah i actually <laughs> I, I didn't know that that's kind of like how are they going to do a second age thing if they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion? Yep. So um, that's I'm uh, I'm I'm expecting it to be dog shit. Now I'm willing to be surprised. I've been surprised pleasantly in the past. I love to eat crow. Love, yeah. love to eat crow. Yeah. I don't think I'm gonna be eating crow this time. Um, it definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone is wondering why we're talking about this, is because no other events have have happened. Um, so we can talk about this, but also it's, I think it, it is important and, and an interesting facet of, you know, how we consume um, literature and also works in general. Okay, music. Uh, first track, I would like to um, 
have you guys listen to Moontooth. Uh, if you've not Wonderful heard band. Moontooth, yes. Moontooth are a fantastic band that makes this sort of really how to categorize progressive metal. Right? Like you want to say that it's just straight up prog, but then they have elements of almost like scrams and math rock in there. And they, they just have this really wild and very unique sort of sound. They've released um, several really good albums. I'm pulling up the names because they're like really weird. Chroma Paragon is... That's is my favorite a, one by them. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the most celebrated one. Uh, but I want to play you a new track, actually. They're gearing up for a new album called Fo- Phototroph, T-R-O-P-H. Um, and the new track is called Carry Me Home. The music video is really funny. These guys have, have like a great sense of humor. It's like a zombie music video. But the track itself really exemplifies that kind of like unbridled energy that Moontooth have. And they have a lot of fun, right? They're, they're not, they don't take themselves too seriously, which is really important in progressive music uh, circles. Um, and it's just a, a great track, which I hope will introduce these guys to um, more of you. Um, so check it out. Moontooth Carry Me Home. Yeah, I've been 
Okay. Book time. We've got a doozy for you this time. Um, we are going to be discussing The Seas by Samantha Hunt. That is the plural of the word sea, as in the ocean. This book was published in 2004, and it is Samantha Hunt's debut, for which she won the National Book Award. That's quite a feat, right? It was published um, in 2004. The thing I was looking at said 2019. Was it? Wait. No, I think it's it, it, it got uh, republished recently. Okay, that that was, that might have been it. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was, it was originally published t- two thousand four. I'm stupid. I was I was looking at the page older. for the uh, for the re-release. Yeah. Or, uh, yes. So she she won the National Book Award for this, which is quite impressive. Uh, National Book Foundation Award, sorry, um, for un- authors under thirty five. Uh, she is an American author um, from New York. And she's also written other books, but this is kind of like her um, claim to fame. And I don't actually remember where I came across this. I think it was a different author which recommended this on their Twitter or something like that, which is, by the way, a really good way to find new books. Um, and it's, it's one of the most powerful books I've had the pleasure of reading in the last few years. I would say that originally I was drawn to it because of its experimental parts, and it's non-ergodic parts, but they're a very minor part of the book. There's one part that's in mirror writing. And I actually had to get up and put it up against the mirror to read it because it's like a really long paragraph. So I couldn't be bothered to do the <laughs> the flipping inside my head. Um, there's also parts that plays with type and typesetting and font and stuff like that. But other than that, its structure is pretty straightforward. But the book itself is anything but. Um, the narrator of the book, which I can't remember because I read it a few months ago. We never learn her name, right, of the protagonist. Do I don't we? think so. Yeah, so she lives in this tiny, very remote seaside town in the north of the United States. But think as far as the um, atmosphere, think Nova Scotia, right? So this small town whose economy is basically collapsed, Right? There used to be like this canning factory, which was the last thing that ever made money for the town, but that's been um, hasn't gotten a contract in like 50 years, and the place is falling apart. Not just the place, also the people. Um, all the men are alcoholics, and therefore very violent, and they suffer the, um, the challenges and travails of living at the outskirts of modern society. Right, They're all super depressed unable to communicate with each other and reach out to each other. And our protagonist is a young woman. The, her name is not given, uh, sorry, her age is not given, but around the end of her teen years. And she's basically staring down the barrel of despair, right? Um, she has no prospects for the future. Uh, she has an unrequited love affair with a man named Jude, who suffers from post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. Uh, seeing it as he uh, shipped out to uh, um, Iraq. And she thinks she is a mermaid, which is the um, magical realist twist of the book. She reimagines her world as her uh, being a mermaid. And this explains all sorts of things, right? Like, why did her father disappear at sea? Why Jude does not return her love? And why she has problems with her... Uh, perceptions of reality and the book kind of before we get to spoilers right the book kind of plays on the question is she imagining all of this 
is it all happening in her head and she suffers from some sort of um, mental disorder? Or is she actually a mermaid? And that's sort of the premise of the book, right? Before we dive in and um, start spoiling things. Anything you want to say, Langdon, on like the overview piece of the novel and how, how you found it? Um, so one of the things that first caught my eye when, when you recommended it, that's a number of months ago, I think now, actually, I think we started talking yeah. about covering this in like November. Um, but I look up the cover and I wind up seeing down at the bottom introduction by Maggie Nelson. Now for a certain type of reader, that name's going to be like a huge thing. Um, yeah. her most recent big book in the literary world was the Argonauts. Fucking incredible book. Fucking great. Um, my favorite from her and the one that introduced her to a lot of people in the like uh, like poetry world was a book called Bluettes, um, which is a cluster of some prose poems, some traditional poetry, um, all focused around the color blue, um, which given the one, given the fact that she wrote something called The Argonauts and two, given the fact that she wrote something called Bluettes, which meditates on various blue things like the eye, the sea, things like that. You look at it in relation to this and you go, oh, ah, um, so that was, <laughs> uh, and her introductory essay, I think is also worth, uh, in most editions, you're going to find that. I, th I think it's in all of them actually. Um, yeah, mine has. uh, it's yeah. So the, the, there's a tremendous amount of love and respect to, um, trying to figure out how to frame this uh these the kinds of questions that the seas examines and the kinds of mythological space that it examines have been sort of ripe in literary spaces over the past like 15 20 years yeah um and it it, it was just very lovely to see that kind of like they, that, that's a big cosign that's like that's that's almost as big of a cosign as if you got like ann carson to to write an introduction to your work where it's like to a certain kind of reader that's gonna be like oh this is serious shit like and especially for someone's debut novel like that's um when when you had told me about this uh eden and it was like oh it's her debut it's a magical realist novel about mermaids um it's very uh emotionally difficult and then i look on the cover and i see that i'm like this book's gonna be fucking great <laughs> so <laughs> i think what initially drew me to the book is its um, magical realism, right? So we've spoken about this a lot on the cast, and, and recently I, I guested on Acid Horizons to talk about magic realism. But I think um, The Seas has a very subtle and a deft control of magic realism in the sense that it mixes it up with the with the mundane, right? And, and that's really, you know, in the podcast when I was speaking on Acid Horizon, we didn't really delay on the definition of magic realism, right? And I think one of the best definitions is when magic and the mundane mix together, right? So magic is not something out of the ordinary, outside of the day-to-day, -day, but it is part of it. So for example, taking a bath, right? Taking a bath is something that we've all done at least as children. I know some adults that don't like taking baths, um, but usually as a child, you'll take baths. And it's something that is quite common, right? But for someone imagining that they're a mermaid, 
like the protagonist in the seas, taking a bath becomes this um, this moment of a possible encounter with the magical. Right, the bath becomes this instance or synecdo, if you'd like, of the ocean. Right, um, this smaller bit that e exemplifies and typifies the larger one, and it, that's actually in the seas. Right, there's a really powerful scene. Yeah. Where the the bath starts, you know, waves start forming, and it almost capsizes the protagonist, right? And it kind of like conjures the ocean into um, her room. And in, in general, what I what I loved about um, the seas, um, you know, not just in that scene and, and the bath, but it, but in general, is how the ocean is a something to be afraid of, but also fascinated with, and how it also constantly invades, right? There's the maybe she's haunted, right? In the attic, there's like sort of like maybe a ghost, maybe it's her dad leaving water all over the place. Um, the bathtub, pouring a drink of water, seeing the ocean in the rear view mirror, right? Driving by a street and, and seeing the ocean like lurking. This idea of, of this body of water being, you know, um, always there, but always immovable. But able to like invade your day to day, the mundane was a really powerful um, metaphor for fear in general. It, right? it also like it an element that I'm not sure if she intended, um, but that definitely struck me, especially reading it in you know in contemporary time, um, was sort of the the lingering existential threat of uh, of climate change. Um, I, it may sound trite to some people, but thinking about things like the invasiveness of the ocean um yeah. in obviously she, she she doesn't really linger on that point she doesn't that's that's not so much present in her prose but it added this like additional melancholic edge um it it didn't have that uh I'm trying to figure out how to uh say this i'm I should have had coffee in the morning. Um <laughs> there are <laughs> instead I was a good boy and I had orange juice. Um there are certain books, especially over time, that the fundamental symbols that they function with make themselves outmoded. And for certain stories, that can add a kind of quaintness and a kind of specific charm. But for other ones, it can kind of like undermine the tale. Um, like imagine reading like a literary work that requires you to have certain like geopolitical tensions that just don't exist in the modern yeah. day. Like you're supposed to really hate Austria. And you're like, why? Yeah. What are they doing? Um, th this one felt it, it, it had that nice, um, especially given the, the book itself is very melancholic. Um, that's, yes. that is, uh, perhaps the biggest tie back to the thing that we were talking about with, uh, Lord of the Rings is that, um, she, de she deliberately doesn't really answer many of the questions that she invokes. And this is obviously on purpose because it's about, it's a coming of age tale clearly written by someone who is an adult. And so the notion of what is coming of age has this different, has this completely different shape to it. It's no longer about the catharsis of um, puberty or freedom or things like that. It's instead the way that as an adult, you look back on your teen years and that sense of questing and yearning as almost a, it's not fruitless, but the fruits that you acquire from that questing and yearning of youth are not anything close to what you think you're doing in the midst of it. Yeah. Um, and so it's it like feels, it's it feels larger in the rearview mirror, right? Yeah, 
it, 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 it so the the story sort of riven with that kind of um the melancholy of youth of the, the tremendous pain of becoming who you are and so then having the added layer of like it, it also felt resonant with me given that one of the one of the primary uh, deuter antagonists is an Iraq war veteran that then I yeah. also have this other contemporary terror of like what if we fail in the face of of you know climate death of the planet uh just sort of lingering in there as well so that that i thought that was a really interesting point right like how climate change plays into so it, it's like a few sentences for the entire book right but she will she'll throw this idea in that one of the fears that the protagonist has from the ocean is it's increasing sea levels right yeah and how it's going to swallow the town and everything there and i think in general like she captured really well the creeping and unsettling dread of living in a modern town in the United States, right? So this is like this has been written about for the last century. This idea of you know the the um, disintegrating infrastructure of the United States and how the, the society is falling apart from within and the dreary, mundane banality of of that evil, right? And that and that rot. But I think that what um, Hunt does really well in this book is that it's so subtle, right? It captures the background hum of, of the suffering of these places, right? There's no, nothing happens in the book, right? Like most of the book, there's some events near the end, like spoilers, Jude disappears, maybe she killed him, maybe he took his own life. It's, it's quite unclear. Um, and then she goes to prison. So th there are some stuff that happens, but for the majority of the book, it's just her that is the protagonist describing her world and her pain in living and nothing happens, right? And and time um, stretches, right? Into this continuous, every day is the same, every day the same people, the same suffering, the same stories, the same way to look at the world. Um, and it really gets across you know, how it feels to live in these places, right? How it feels to um, be part of a society that is just going absolutely nowhere, which ties really well back into climate change, right? Like we're on this rail, rail track, we're all heading at the same speed towards this fucking disaster, but it's impossible to get off. Day after day, you know, day chases day. I still, I had this moment when, um, I don't remember specifically what it was in the news, some storm or some freak uh, sort of weather um, event and I was thinking to 15 years ago when I was 20 where all these things seemed so far away right um, it would take so long for these things to happen but it's already happening and at no point did I get a memo right like no told me, <laughs> we have now entered the era of climate disaster like I was just on this track and they chased the other day and I was living my life and everything was normal and suddenly it's not and I think this book does a really good job of capturing how that feels. And, and it, especially, and last yeah, thing on my rant, yeah, last you thing keep on going. my rant, especially how it feels for other people to tell you that everything's okay. Right? Like that's that's the part that I was literally just about to say. Like that's the yeah. part that's been like burning in my head about reading this book. Um that so there's a sense, especially in and this is this is where my experience with this is going to be slightly different um, from from Eden's, although you'll obviously understand this. Yeah. Being in America, I look at 
um, the news of the world. And I see um, horror after horror, many of which caused by my own nation or by allies of my nation or indirectly if it's caused by allies of my nation, it's caused by my nation surreptitiously through the allies of. But it's all it's all distant. It's all distant, but it's obviously this like tremendous powder keg. And you have climate death. You have the acceleration of capital. You have um, the beginnings of resource and refugee wars. Like all these things that we associate with apocalypsis. Um, like eras ending. And, you know, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous pain. And there's two unique experiences to having that within the relative safety of something like America, or in this case, Canada, which has a similar kind of ensconcing of, of safety. One of them is melancholy and the other one is doom. It may seem weird or self-centered to associate that with safety rather than plight, but there is, this is not to say that being in the midst of tremendous conflict is good or being under threat of rocket attacks is good. Absolutely fucking isn't. But there is a kind of, it's post-doom in a certain in a certain sense. Like, yeah. you're not doomed when you are dead. You're not doomed when you are sick with the illness that will kill you. You're doomed when you are approaching that, and it is inevitable, but you cannot turn away. Like, that's sort of definitionally what doom is. That you're locked on this track, you're staring down the barrel, but it hasn't come yet. And the melancholy is the feeling that you get and the sort of dissolving dissociative social feeling of wanting to discuss the tremendous distress of that sense of doom that like in America, in Canada, it's baldly apparent that these things will come home to roost, whether it's through climate change, whether it's through war, whether it's through civil war, whether it's in five years or in 150 years, it's like, it's building a structure that cannot last and will collapse. It seems baldly apparent and all we're hoping for, especially on... And what's weird is you see this sentiment everywhere. This isn't just the leftist feeling apocalyptic. This is also right-wingers talking about a coming storm. This is right-wingers talking about just like overthrowing abortion and having basically a theocracy in America. This is liberals talking about driving out these insane people and returning to... Uh, liberal democracy, rule of law kind of things. Like everyone sees these conflicts brewing. But when you mention the melancholy or the doom directly, people get very emotionally evasive. They think it's self centered yeah. to talk about this in the wake of the real suffering happening in other communities. They think it's preemptive. They think that the most traditional one, that you're being a downer that you shouldn't be a downer because these are things we can't control. So why are you going to fixate on them? And it just becomes unnerving at a certain point that it's like, we're all staring down the barrel of a fucking gun and no one, everyone's too cowardly to say that. And so having a book that just zeroed in on that. And I think also, I, I completely agree with everything you said, but now if you want to flip it into some positive things that can be gotten from this book, that's exactly what I mentioned also on the Acid Horizon uh, podcast. Magic realism is a means of possible escape from all of these fates. Right? So yes. major spoilers, right? The book ends with 
the protagonist and her mother just going out into the ocean and accepting the sea and accepting its dissolving quality. And it actually dissolves language, right? It ends with this dictionary definition of the ocean, which um, floats away, right, on, on the page and, and disappears into this horizon. There's, there's no promise. Like, they understand in that moment that the husband is not coming back. and But the question of whether the protagonist is a mermaid or not is left hanging but the point and it's it's a happy moment right well happy tinged with sadness the melancholy that we discussed um the point is that the mother throughout the entire book denies the possibility of anything being different right and she urges the protagonist time and time again stop making trouble like this is the way things are and this is the way they will be and there is no off-ramp Right? There's no exit. But magic realism in this book, the acceptance of the potential of the protagonist of being a mermaid, the acceptance of the presence of the mermaid story in her life as informing her actions, as informing her relationships, as informing her possibilities, is a possible escape from the doom. Right, The doomed reality that... Um, is offered to her as the only alternative. Now, when she tries to posit that escape, she is labeled as mentally ill, right? Like, literally. Um, she gets diagnosed, she gets thrown in jail, she gets, um, you know, people uh, treat her as um, crazy. And, that, and, and that's where also the super subtle and very interesting feminist bent of the book is, right? Because essentially, if you think about it, if you strip like the details of the, of the story, what's happening is a woman obsessed with two men, her dad and her unrequited love, and both those men are terrible for her and keep her down and keep her you know, um, inside her depression and her self-hatred. Um, uh, and then her escape is uh, through A, identifying with if you go and read the folk stories about mermaids, an inherently uh, or possibly feminist story, right? Because the mermaid kills the man and, and triumphs, right? Um, and B, with her mother, connecting with her mother, right? And only when she does that, that is, accept her role as this female uh, figure of strength, but also understands her relationship with her mother and her own coming of age, is where freedom lies. And it's just... You know, it's really hard to get across how this book feels in words, right? Um, yeah. It's so subtle. All of these points that we're making, we're really like squeezing them from within the story. Um, because the story does such an amazing job of, you know, making them as part of the ambience, um, part of the atmosphere, and never directly stated, never directly looked at. And it makes them all the more powerful for that, right? Um, just a really interesting way to get all these points across. It's, I think, yeah, go ahead. There was, I think that's sort of the, the transformative edge of the story for me. Um, yeah. And it sits, it sits similar to things that I found quite resonant with. Um, so I've talked before, I have a great fondness for Nietzsche. He's not unproblematic, but part of the role of, philosophy is to like um salvage thought from thinkers um people who 
do philosophy stuff will understand what I mean by that. Sometimes these people are tremendously fucking dumbasses. Um, and your job is to go, that's a good thought. How can I chop off the bits that are you being a dumbass to get the bit that's a useful and good thought? But um, my, my resonance there started when I was a very traumatized um, teen who hadn't grappled with emotional abuse, physical abuse, um, didn't know that I was on the spectrum. And so the social tra trauma that came from that, I didn't have a name for or shape for at all. And it's, it's obvious why Nietzsche would be a very, um, very attractive thinker to certain people bearing certain kinds of traumas. But one of the, the tremendous healing components of it that I think gets sort of overwritten by um, people who are too sharply critical of him is um, uh, the notion of like, in order to go over first, you must go under. It's a, uh, He does like a philosophical version of the only way out is through. Yeah. Um, without getting too deep into it, we could do a whole last fucking series of episodes about that. But that notion that like, when you're... He, and this book feels very much in the same realm of those kinds of questions of that sense of doom and melancholy comes precisely from when you witness the undeniable nihilistic truth of certain things and the escape from nihilism real escape isn't the false escape of distraction because inevitably if you're distracted you will be returned to it no matter how many times you try to make yourself not think about the fact that one day you'll die by doing something else the thought will come back sooner yeah. or later you have to reconcile yourself to it in some more fundamental and permanent way otherwise you will only ever be chased by terror and the only way to do that is quite literally to push all the way through with thought and where we find certain people tedious with melancholy or doom is when they just sort of sit inside it and don't not actually, no, no. If they sit inside it, that's almost more meditative. It's, it's when they sort of um, bounce against the wall of it over and over. They're not really inside the feeling and they're not pushing through the feeling. They're just like, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I'm doomed in that sort of panic. Um, and I, the thing that I find quite, soothing on a deeper level about this book is the way that it again gently pushes all the way through those feelings it lets itself sit inside them placidly it lets itself absorb them and then it lets itself move through them so i i think this is really interesting and touches on the so it's almost like a story within a story which is a story of jude in the book, right? And his experiences during the war. So to preface that, I'll say that one of the um, moves that, or developments that have been done with nihilism in the last um, 20 to 30 years is this idea of cosmic nihilism, most, um, most famously written about by Ray Brassier, really interesting thinker. And, and this sort of nihilism actually grew in response to a lot of Nick Land stuff, uh, but also in general, this idea of like right-wing nihilism, right? Um, of of, ex of ex right-wing accelerationism. And what this nihilism says is, you know, forget your own death, like that's small beans, right? Whatever, you're gonna die. But like the sun is going to explode. And even way before that, like it's probable, if not certain, that humanity will be extinguished, 
right? So it's not just you that is going to die. In the cosmic scale of things, which is why it's called cosmic nihilism, everything will end, right? Um, and that realization, you know, it's even stronger, right? Because it's not just about how you can outlast your doom or what you should do with your doom, but how do we deal with the inherent doom of everything? Uh, this, of course, prefigures in many, many, many literary works, obviously most in the genre of cosmic horror, uh, again, very problematic, but H.P. Lovecraft, of course, and others. And there's actually a tiny bit of this in the seas. So when Jude goes to Iraq, it's the classic story of he has no idea what he's doing there. No one fucking knows what he's doing there. Um, it's completely incompetent. And, and remember, this was published in 2004, right? So this is as a lot of these things are still happening. This is before we know, well, most people know the extent of the colossal disaster that was the um, second Iraq war, right? Um, so he goes there, he has no idea what he's doing, and eventually he wanders off into the desert and encounters a ziggurat, right? Like this ancient um, structure. I think he's actually in Fallujah, if I remember correctly, in the book. Which is uh, a very uh, yeah yeah right so it's a very interesting choice. Uh, he wanders and he finds this ziggurat, and what ends up um, breaking him, like mentally breaking him, causes time to wander and his perception to um, almost be lost. Is the wind flowing inside the crack of this ziggurat? Now the importance here is um, clear, right? This ziggurat used to be this center of cultural significance for this you know very powerful and rich civilization. Now it's nothing it's lego bricks right it is completely um devoid of meaning and purpose and is sidetracked by the war as well no one cares like no one is going to fight over this ziggurat and the wind running through it is of course the erosion the continuance of of the world in, in wearing down this thing and that meeting is what destroys him now jude also experiences a lot of weird stuff in the ocean and this is all narrated to us by the protagonist so at some point her dad reveals himself to jude and like um, threatens him to never uh, get close to her which is her excuse i feel like you know she's an unreliable narrator right it's not actually jude telling her that that's her excuse for why he doesn't return her love but the ur moment right like the origin of all this suffering and in a sense of her suffering as well right because this depression draws her to jude and prevents him from fully committing to her is that meeting with the cosmic, right? With the um, inevitability of the infinite, of, of destruction, of um, the falling apart at the seams. But interestingly, in the seas, it gets rejected, right? In the form of that acceptance that happens at the end. Because Jude, make no mistake, he's a loser. He sucks. And the protagonist realizes that at some point, at the end, and disconnects from him. Right? She moves past him. So it, it, it's another really subtle uh, way for Han to say, you know, all this depression that you're feeling is legitimate and I feel it too and it's awful and our societies are encouraging this or, or at least not helping us with it. But but the key is, like like you said, like Nietzsche said, right? The key is to persevere um, in spite of it, right? To, to accept, um, and, and this is the eternal return, right? To accept that fate and, and to love it. To say, yes, this yeah. is all there is, right? This is all there is. Uh, wow, we can have like a whole thing about Amor Fati and all that stuff. But um, 
you know, you know what? Maybe I'll explain what I mean, like, because I think it's an important point. Um, the eternal return. Have I done this on the podcast before? I'm getting deja vu now. I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I must have talked about it, but I can't. Rem- I'm like, so I know, uh, like we talk, like we talk about this a lot, but I'm not yeah. sure if we have so, on so the let's, podcast. So let's let's do that again, just in case. Let's do it really quick. This is from the Gay Science. Um, basically, it's a thought experiment. What if a demon were to reveal um, himself to you and say? You know, everything that you've done, every single moment of your life, including this one, you will do again without the opportunity of changing it. It's not a do-over. Everything will return for eternity. What is your response? And then Nietzsche's answer is that happiness is being able to say, I have one moment in my life that justifies the entire return and makes me love the fact that the return is eternal. You should live your entire life so that you have at least one moment for which you'll repeat everything into infinity. And that's Amor Fati, right? You say to the demon, I love my fate. You thought this was a curse, but it's a blessing because I have that moment. And then the next step is, that moment should be every moment. Every single moment of your life should be lived so that you would repeat your entire life in order to get to do it, right? And that is the way to break the curse, the curse of nihilism, right? Nihilism says everything is lost, everything is for nothing, everything decays, and in that phase you say, and I love it, right? I love that because I will live a life fierce enough and authentic enough to powerful enough to burn through that. Now, the problem with that and, and, and Morfati and Nietzsche and all that stuff, it, like a lot of Nietzsche stuff, it's very masculine, right? It's very yeah. forceful. Um, and Hunt, and also a bunch of other writers, of course, but Hunt in the Seas is offering something else, a, a different sort of acceptance. An acceptance that is less rooted in, you know, a firm fist or a burning flame and more in the acceptance of, you know, the inevitability of, of the ocean, the inevitability of um, erosion. And, and that's, that's the failure of Jude, right? That's what he fails to do. He fails to um, move past that moment, move past the wall, move past that doom, and embrace what is in front of him, which is someone who loves him, who cares for him, who wants to be with him, um, but he cannot do it. By the way, I'm giving you a chance before the episode ends to talk about the fact that he's called Jude. <laughs> Langdon. Uh, look. No, that's it's not Book of the New Sun, so I don't need to. <laughs> I don't need to bust into that. Look, Gene Wolfe is Catholic to his fucking bone. Um, yeah. although, yeah, granted, the fact that he's he's called uh Jude and there's tales of the sea. This, this feels very much and. Uh, yeah, it, it uh, look up Jude and uh, Bible or Judaism, and you'll you'll get you'll get a good number of uh, yeah a good number of pings. That that definitely wasn't an incidental name <laughs> for sure. So maybe wrapping things up here um, about the seas. I honestly, you know, I'm a I, I cry a lot, right? I'm just that kind of person. I'm very. Uh, emotional and I cry a lot and I cry when I when I finish books but not often 
it really takes a, a very specific sort of book to to get me to cry at, at the end of it and i was weeping when i finished this book i was bawling my out my eyes out and it's not just because it's sad and it is <laughs> like this book is very sad but it's also because of that sense of um acceptance and 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 the power that's within it um, we, di- we didn't even talk about the grandfather and the grandmother and the beautiful love story there. Um, they both work in a typesetting factory and, and they use the, the, the typeset to uh, send letters of love to each other. Um, and how the grandmother disappears into the background. We didn't even talk about um, the grandfather's like collection of dictionaries and uh, so many other beautiful things in this book that really make it very very emotionally impactful um, and also really complement its subtlety and the way that it kind of looks not head-on but to decide um, on its concepts I just re- really recommend just reading it <laughs> right um, and, and and you know really giving yourself to it uh, because it will reward you and if you're interested in something similar to this I don't know maybe we'll do an episode about this um, Sion the Icelandic writer, speaking of um, Icelandic stuff, has a book that really reminded me of this one, and it's The Whispering Muse. It's also about the Argonauts, by the way, Langdon. Um, Fuck yes. And it also has Fuck this, yes. like... Which we should maybe cover this in a future episode, but if someone wants to read that in advance alongside with the seas, I think there's uh, interesting comparison points because it also, like, what is myth, what is reality, but it's basically about acceptance, also has themes of... Um, men and women and, and acceptance and, and so on. Um, I also see that it's apparently been positively compared to Borges, Calvino, and Haldor Laxness. Uh, yeah, so the first two are major, major names for me, and the last one is a contemporary um, Nobel uh, literary winner. Yeah, so uh, Sion in general is very interesting, and I think I'm, I'm very much complimenting Samantha Hunt by comparing her to him. He's a fantastic writer, and, and this book really gave me um, vibes of his uh, The Whispering Muse. I still have some of his books that I need to read. He has like longer stuff, uh, but I might read The Blue Fox, which is also supposed to be very good. Um, anyway, The Seas. Extremely good book, very sad. Uh, read it if you want to cry. Read it if you want something emotional. Um, and that's it. You enjoyed it as well, Langdon, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. This is, um, there are certain books that are like uh, beautiful big romps, certain ones that are nice little laughs. This one was like a cold, two cold hands wrapped around my heart. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sad like, books well, about the ocean? Oh, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you should really read The Whispering Muse and, and we should talk about it. Uh, do you have uh, music to send us out? Uh, let me find something. There were a couple really good, uh, uh cause I have one lined dropped. up if you would like. Um, let me see if I have something first. Uh, I may, let me look at the, uh, uh, no, apparently, apparently I don't, especially because I don't think that we could, uh, probably get away with putting, uh, Voivod on. <laughs> 
Damn, yeah. I love that record though. Damn, but <laughs> the, the guys on um, Acid Horizon asked asked me like, how do you how do you get music like on your podcast? And I was like, we just upload it and we hope we don't get taken down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we buy the records, and I I normally buy them for more than the listed price. So I'm like, you're getting you're getting more than a stream from no, me. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, I also all the music that we put on here is stuff that we buy, by the way. But you know, yeah. the DMCA auto bots and algorithms don't give a shit. So. Uh, don't make us too popular if you're listening to this. Otherwise, we'll get DMCA to death. Um, so I'm going to feature a track by this really fascinating project called An Evening Redness. Oh, shit. This record was fantastic. This record is super good and very, very challenging. So I'm a big is... Blood Meridian guy. So this was... Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So, so think like um, Drone... And stoner, but ambient stuff, right? Not, not like your wall of sound, sun sort of thing, but this very sparse Western ambient doom, which slowly builds up into one of the heaviest and most abrasive moments you'll hear this year on the final track. That's what this is like. So the project um, is by this composer called Brandon Elkins, and also features Bridget Belavia on vocals. And Brandon Sloan from Convulsing does a solo on the last track. And if you don't know who Brandon Sloan or Convulsing is, you're fucking up. Some of the best crushing experimental death metal you hear. He's also that known... crazy like 20 minute long song that he put out is so fucking good. Yeah, he's incredible. He's a good friend of mine, a good friend of Heavy Blog, so I always uh, enjoy the opportunity to shout him out. He also did a fantastic cover of Porcupine Tree's The, si- the Sky Moves Sideways, which is one of my favorite Porcupine Tree tracks. Really cool guy. Wait, so he, he did does... a cover of The Sky Moves Sideways? Yeah, dude. Yeah, he did. When? <laughs> um, I think he might have taken it down. Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I shouldn't have actually talked about it. I don't know. There was a whole thing there, but it, it was up there for a while. Um, very, very uh, interesting. The uh, the the song in specific I was thinking about is Engraved Upon Bleached Bone by Convulsing. Fucking amazing. Fucking amazing, amazing, amazing song. Yeah. So I'm going to feature Black Flame at the Edge of the Desert, which is the final track from um, An Evening Redness. But you should really go and listen to the entire album to get that like build-up feeling. But just, just listen to this track. It's 10 minutes long, but if you take it in its entirety and the odd vibes in the beginning, the melancholy, the, um, the, the those, uh, steel lap guitar and haunting vocals and all that stuff, and then you get to like the crushing crescendo at the outro, outro sorry, it's a real uh, unique um, experience, um, which I will now gift to you. So this is Black Flame at the Edge of the Desert by An Evening Redness, and we will see you next time. Goodbye.